Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. We are celebrating Women's History Month this week on the show with some guests who examine the impact of women on our culture as well as how culture impacts the lived experiences of women. First up, we're going to be talking to filmmaker Andrea Nevins. Her new documentary, Hysterical, celebrates women in stand-up comedy. Then we're going to chat with friend of the show, Melissa Phoebos, about her extraordinary new book, Girlhood, which looks at the forces that shape girls' lives and what that means for the adults that they become. Kirkus called the book profound and gloriously provocative. Then we are going to hear from Pink Martini. They're going to perform their cover of I Am Woman, because no women's history show would be complete without some uh, Helen Reddy. So we've got that as well. Stay with us. It's going to be a great show. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey there, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. We are celebrating Women's History on the show this week because it's Women's History Month. And that's related to this week's round of station location identification examination. Okay. This is where I tell you about a place where Livewire is on the radio and you try to figure out the place that I am talking about. This city is home to the nation's first PhD program in women's history, which was established by Gerda Lerner, who is one of the founders of the academic field of women's history and is often credited with establishing or helping to establish Women's History Month nationally. Mm. Would you like a follow-up hint? Yeah, follow-up, please. Okay, okay. Uh, This place also hosts the annual National Women's Music Festival, and it's the birthplace of Stacey Abrams, the politician, the author, the voting rights activist. Now, of course, Stacey Abrams is well-known for her work in Georgia. Yes. But this is much... I'd say this is, is much more towards the middle of the country and the northern middle of the country. Oh, the middle of the country. Okay, because yeah. I, I was thinking Wyoming because they were the first state to get suffrage. It must be one of those progressive, like, Minnesota. Yes, but yeah. south. Madison, Wisconsin. That's a, Where's my bell? Because exactly they have a college there. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin, where Livewire is on WHAAM radio. So shout out to everyone in Madison, Wisconsin listening to the show. Speaking of which... Should we get to it? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, 
It's Livewire. This week, filmmaker Andrea Nevins. And I was looking for a way to look out ahead. Where was feminism going? And there's no more interesting place, I think, than in the world of stand-up. And writer Melissa Phoebos. It is not safe to assume, based on social scripts, what other people are thinking and feeling. And nobody knows unless we tell them. With music from Pink Martini. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you very much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in from Madison, Wisconsin, to other points here in this fine country. Uh, We are celebrating women's history on the show this week. And so, as we like to do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question this week to tie it into the theme. We asked, what unsung or undersung hero from women's history, would you like to shout out? And we're going to be hearing those answers coming up in just a few moments on the show. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This, of course, is our little segment at the top of the show where we try to remind you and really ourselves, honestly, that there is good (laughs) news still happening out there in the world. It's easy to forget that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elena, what's the best news that you heard this week? Oh, this this news made me feel great. I was looking for a women's issue kind of a story, and boy, did I find one. It starts out with a kind of interesting fact. A researcher at a University of Ontario started surveying women athletes in the Northwest Territories of Canada, way, 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 way up there, like where Glenn Gould had that amazing radio piece, The Idea of North, which is like one of my favorite things ever. And this researcher found out that one thing that helps a lot of women deal with depression, isolation, anxiety, and other mental health issues during the very, very dark months up there is sports, Mm. Uh, particularly one sport. Can you guess which sport? Is this like a a sort of deeply Canadian sport? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say curling. That's right. (laughs) That's right. There was this incredible story in the New York Times written by one of their mental health reporters um, with these beautiful photos accompanying them. So there's this town in the Northwest Territories called Inuvik, 120 miles north of the Arctic Circle. So in the winter, this could obviously be really isolating. You're stuck in the house all the time, but to a degree that even people in towns with harsh winters don't understand. And this town has one stoplight, It has two restaurants, no movie theater, but it does have this windowless wrought iron rec center. And all of these different women in the communities have formed curling groups that, you know, they don't want to let anybody else down, right? So they show up and they participate in curling. It gets folks out of the house. It also, the article argues, deprograms a lot of mental health problems that were exacerbated by colonialism. Um, there's sort wow. of an, you know, an, a, an emotional disconnect that kind of becomes the norm when, mm-hmm. you know, your culture is taken away from you. And there's a lot of indigenous people up in that community. It also really helps with the coronavirus lockdown, Michigas, when folks were even more isolated and kind of shutting down. And then the thing that's sort of argued in this article, which, by the way, is by Ellen Barry with photographs by Hillary Swift, 
curling has a lot of drama in it and a lot of kind of like weird physics sorcery in it and things mm. happen that, mm-hmm. you know, you can't quite imagine. So there's narrative and there's like magic and then everybody goes out and drinks beer afterward. <laughs> so it really does seem like the perfect sport for women to connect with each other and to stay connected and to stay grounded and for a community to keep each other close in what seems like a really, really harsh climate during a really, really harsh period of, you know, human history. <laughs> Life on this planet. Yup. <laughs> it's interesting because sports also factors into the best news that I saw this week. Now, there is a new sports bar that's going in near my house here in Portland, Elena, and I drive by it all the time. And I'm excited that it's there because I love sports and I also love bars. And this place is walking distance from my house. Hey. But what I never noticed was that it's not called Sports Bar, which I thought, well, that's a pretty generic name. (laughs) It's called The Sports Bra, because it is, as far as anyone can tell, the first women's sports bar in the country. So what does that mean exactly, like the first women's sports bar in the country? Well, it was uh, founded by a person named Jenny Nguyen, who herself is an athlete, plays basketball and has been doing that for most of her life and has just been a sports fan. But she says that she noticed that when she would go into sports bars, it was always almost exclusively men's sports that were being played on the TVs. And you'd have to go up and ask the bartender if they could change the channel, if there was, in fact, uh, some women's sports that were on, you know, a different network or whatever. This is a thing I never thought about. This is like the privilege of being a dude, honestly, (laughs) is that something like 40% of athletes are women, so that's pretty close to half of the people doing wow. sports. Yeah. 96% of all the athletes on TV are men. Wow. Like 4% of the sports programming on television is actually featuring women athletes. And I bet it's really frequently single women athletes like Serena Williams, like people who are doing sports that aren't team sports. So that narrows it even further. Right. It's just not representative at all to the degree that it should be. Well, uh, Jenny Nien and the people that she's collaborating with are putting together this place, the sports bra, to (laughs) totally invert that dynamic. So they're working with all these different teams and organizations and networks to make sure that there is enough of the programming actually being documented and generated for them to have it as the default setting on all of their TVs. They're also really trying to make this a a woman-focused space and business. They're reaching out to women-owned companies as much as possible to get their food and their beverages. They're also working with a group called Girls Build, which teaches young girls woodworking to build the tables for the bar. They did a Kickstarter. They've raised $79,000 for this project. And it's just this really incredible thing. I Again, selfishly, I am so excited. This is like five blocks from where I live and I am going to be hanging out in there and I'm going to be watching women's sports and I'm going to be having a whale of a time in my local sports bar, the sports bra. (laughs) That's the best news that I've heard maybe all year, (laughs) not even just this week. All right. Let's welcome our first guest over to Livewire. She is the filmmaker behind the new documentary Hysterical about the history and also the future of women in stand-up comedy. The film premiered at the South by Southwest Festival and is now out on FX and Hulu. Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Andrea Nevins, recorded in March of last year. 
Andrea Nevins, welcome to the Livewire House Party. So happy to be here. Couldn't be happier. (laughs) What got you interested in this topic in the first place? You know, I had just finished a documentary about Barbie, Tiny Shoulders, and uh, and I had done a deep dive into looking at the past 60 years of uh, women and feminism. Um, uh, Barbie was born at the very beginning of the second wave of feminism, and uh, and I was not done exploring and was looking for a way to look out ahead. Um, where, where was feminism going? Mm. And there's no more interesting place, I think, than, uh, than in the world of stand-up because those are the people who really push boundaries uh, and kind of get us to the very end of, of, of what we're allowed to talk about, mm. uh, what we're allowed to think about. And so that seemed like a, like a cool place to go and explore. Uh, you profile a bunch of different comedians uh, who are women in this film, and they have sort of wildly different backgrounds. I'm wondering if there's like a through line that you started to pick up as the director in their experience that kind of got them to being stand-up comics. Well, <laughs> as, as Fortune very clearly says, uh, damage. Um, but I think that there's not any of us who couldn't find some element of damage in our childhood that uh, changed our courses in some way. Yeah, we all um, act out in different ways just mm-hmm. for – some of us, it's talking into a microphone. <laughs> exactly. And for some of us, it's hiding behind a camera and making movies and telling stories. So you can figure out what my damage was. Um, but, uh, but, but all of these women really found a need to uh, express themselves on stage. Uh, and in that very unique, I think, frightening way of being all alone on stage without a director, without other actors, and even for them without props. So um, I began to see them really as superheroes, Mm. just really so brave to get up there uh, against all odds. Um, I mean, hopefully things are changing and evolving a little bit here in 2021, but a lot of the comedians that you interview in this film, they got started, uh, you know, 10 years, sometimes 20 years ago. What was the experience like for them as they described it to you of of starting out, you know, in the 80s of trying to be a woman doing stand-up comedy? It was fairly terrifying and dreadful uh, in in a multitude of ways, from demeaning introductions uh, to not being able to get up on stage at all because – for example, a club owner might say, oh, you know, we had a woman on a couple of weeks ago and she really didn't do very well. So we're not having any women. <laughs> yeah, it's like Judy Gold, I think, is saying in the film that somebody said to her three months ago, we had a woman <laughs> at this club and it didn't go well. Like I've been in stand-up comedy clubs. If if a man having a bad stand-up comedy set meant there couldn't be any more men for three months, there would be like no men in the comedy club. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and I was I was really shocked just going out and shooting marquees, you know, mm-hmm. as B roll, mm-hmm. uh, and seeing man, 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 mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. woman, man, 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 man. Mm-hmm. And I think that all those women are still finding that. So that's a hard thing to come up against as well. And then in addition, um, I think it's just a very different thing for women to be on the road alone. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things that you have to do to become a, an excellent stand-up comedian is practice, practice, practice. And a great way to practice is to go out uh, outside of your home city and get stage time. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of these women, it meant, <laughs> and they're very funny about it, um, ar- arriving and getting picked up by <laughs> right. somebody who feels like a serial killer or <laughs> you know, people following you uh, mm-hmm. to, a, to a kind of dreary hotel and banging on the door all night. Um, it's, it's scary to be a woman alone 
traveling in the United States. Mm -hmm. It still is. This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening to a conversation we had with Andrea Nevins about her film, Hysterical. Uh, We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to our interview with Andrea Nevins about her film, Hysterical covering women in stand-up comedy. We recorded this last year. Take a listen. Um, Have you ever done stand-up comedy yourself, Andrea? Were you ever tempted as like a (laughs) method directing when making this? (laughs) You're violently shaking your head. <laughs> Never, no, absolutely not. No, it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And that when the way that what these women do is really just to me the scariest thing I can imagine, short of jumping out of an airplane. Mm. Um, so that just describes who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki Glazer has a line. The the comedian Nikki Glazer has a line um, in the beginning of the film, I think, where she says, uh, "Women have an advantage in comedy because we've been in our feelings forever." <laughs> Is there any is there any truth to that? I think there's 100% truth in that. I I do think that that women have been brought up with a lot of negatives, but one of the positives is that we've been taught to be uh, attuned to our feelings. And uh, when you can name things in a very precise way, that's often the source of a lot of comedy. Um, it's when you're sort of sh- when you as an audience member are shocked that somebody just revealed a truth that you hadn't even been able to name yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think these women have that in spades. They're really just gifted. One of the things I really enjoyed about the film was a a kind of a moment to reflect on like the history of women in stand-up comedy and people like Phyllis Diller and and Joan Rivers, and also the insane tightrope that they were walking Mm -hmm. um, because of just how things were framed, you know, back in their day. 
Yeah, there's this moment where where um, Phyllis Diller's being interviewed by a bunch of men, right? And uh, <laughs> and and they're just um, shocked, first of all, that she's willing to get up there and talk, but also terrified that she's a man basher, mm-hmm. and that that's the only way that a woman can find humor in the world is by tearing men down. And she has to assure them that no, 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 no. The only reason why I could do this is because I love men so much. (laughs) Right. And and like moms, Mabley, uh, I learned in this film, you know, part of her kind of costume on stage was to be dressed very sort of in a house coat and, and seeming more elderly than she really was to kind of blunt the effect of the actual satire that she was putting out. Time and time again in those early days of, of women doing stand-up, they had to subvert any femininity. Mm-hmm. They had to be anti-sexual, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating. So moms did it by dressing uh, like, a, like a granny, and um, Phyllis Diller did it by making her hair crazy. Right. And everybody found ways to make it so that you would be paying attention to the funny and not to the body which I found a very interesting thing because there's yeah. this idea that uh, that if men are in the audience, the first thing they're going to be thinking about is not how funny she is, but how cute she is or right. whether he might want to go to bed with her. And so they had to blunt that. And it's taken a long time for women to get past that in the audience eyes. And I had this flashback to another documentary that I watched that addressed women in country music when you had that montage of all these different late night talk show hosts introducing Joan Rivers as like, my daffy little quirky little tiny little cute. And then with Dolly Parton, it was like, here's this little lady, you know, like Porter Wagoner or whatever. And um, even the way that they're introduced is diminutive and dismissive across these industries. It was a real kind of connective moment. <laughs> Isn't it surprising? And then when you get to see it and not just talk about it, it, it's that much more shocking. I had also never heard that Jerry Lee Lewis clip of what year was that, that Jerry Lee Lewis said what he said about women can't be funny. I, there were a couple of different references to it, and one was early on, and one was, I think, as recently as, as in the 70s. Unbelievable. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> That woke the dog up. <laughs> yeah, like, just for folks who haven't seen the film yet, this is Jerry Lewis basically saying he doesn't think women can be funny. Um, and then there was an interesting part in the film, Andrea, by the way, we're talking to Andrea Nivens about her film Hysterical, um, where you're interviewing Eliza Schlesinger, and you ask a question that Eliza Schlesinger interprets to be a version of, why do people think women can't be funny? And Eliza says to you, I thought we weren't going to talk about that. I'm curious, why was that question something that you weren't supposed to talk about? Time and time again, when we reached out to uh, women comedians, they said, I will not be part of a documentary that rehashes that awful uh, way of thinking, mm-hmm. which is that women aren't aren't funny. Um we have proven ourselves to be funny, so I will not continue to discuss that. And so I had <laughs> promised her that there was no way, shape, or form that that's what this documentary is going to be about. And what I asked her was, why do you think that that even came into being? But mm. she was she was really attuned to it, and so she just shut me down. <laughs> but, that, but it sounds like that is a question that women comedians, uh, maybe not all of them, but many of them are very tired of sort of litigating and answering. Exhausted. It's so ridiculous. Exhausted. And, and it's ridiculous. And come on, people. There are plenty of funny women that everybody can name. Let's get over that. Um, 
How are the comedians from this film that you've kept in touch with, how are they doing in this version of the world where they're really not able to get out and do stand-up comedy in clubs very much? I, I think it's been incredibly hard. I think they've all found creative outlets in various ways. Um, for a while there, Jessica Kirsten was like doing this Zoom bomb of people's Passovers, because huh. uh, <laughs> which was hysterical. Um, uh, but people have found different different ways. Like uh, a few a few people are now out at some outdoor venues. Um, but I know that all of them have felt really sad. This is this is a place of connection for them. This is a place where their where their voices are are allowed to to come out and to bottle them up like that. I think has been hard as as we've all been suffering in our own mm-hmm. in our own ways, being so isolated. Uh, do you have reason for optimism, um, having spent some time really immersed in this world of stand up comedy, and particularly talking to women who perform stand up comedy? Like, do you feel like things are moving in the right direction for 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 both the the women who are performing and the women who will come later to perform? I, I really do. I, f- I feel um, a great deal of optimism about what's coming up for women in comedy, in part because of the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. some some strong self-awareness about exactly the ways that men have stifled uh, women's voices in this field. Uh, and I also feel like there's a new generation of women who haven't been through everything that uh, that this generation had and, uh, and, and, and come at it with a, with a bit more force and, uh, and energy. Um, you know, they kind of stand on the shoulders of, of the women who came before them. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Were you a stand-up comedy fan before this? I mean, you said that you were, you were looking at it from a, a feminist perspective and as an interesting sort of performative thing, but have you now become like a fan <laughs> of going to dank comedy clubs and watching people tell jokes into a microphone? I cannot wait to go back. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> yeah. excited. I, I mean, it just it's 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 such it's so cathartic, uh-huh. and I don't think we've had that kind of catharsis uh, in a very oh, long time. Yes, and we're desperate for yes. it. Yes. Right? <laughs> uh, well, Andrea Nevins, uh, the film is great. It's hysterical. It's on FX. Uh, we highly recommend it, and uh, we'll see you at a dank comedy club, <laughs> hopefully in the near future. I cannot wait. That was Andrea Evans right here on Livewire. Uh, you can check out her documentary, Hysterical, on FX and Hulu right now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Trace Harrell of Federal Way, Washington. Trace is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month. I know. There are so many worthy causes that could use your support. And, uh, well, we sure do appreciate folks like Trace. Picking Livewire is one of those organizations because without support like the kind we are getting each month from Trace, we would not be able to keep Livewire going. So a big thanks to Trace for supporting the show. This is Livewire. As we do each week, we asked our listeners a question. Uh, Since we are celebrating Women's History Month this episode, we asked the listeners, what unsung or undersung hero from women's history would you like to shout out? Elena has been collecting up those responses, and you have some of them now. What do you see in Elena? Okay, this was awesome. I know only one of these women that the listeners want written into the history books, and they all sound amazing. Well, kudos to the Livewire listeners for finding 
the undersung and unsung, you know? It's like people aren't probably just sending in Susan B. Anthony or something. No, no, there were none of those. All due respect to Susan B. Anthony. But. Yeah, perhaps SB, SBA. Okay, so listen to this one from Johanna. Johanna brought up Inez Mexia, who was an early 20th century Mexican-American botanist. But she didn't just do her work in Mexico. She traveled from northern Alaska all the way down to Tierra del Fuego in her research expeditions. She traveled alone, which was super rare back then. She rode horseback in trousers. She slept outdoors. And she is responsible for collecting novel, brand new specimens from Mexico, Peru, Colombia, like 150,000 of them. And she even discovered a new genus of daisy. Not a species of Daisy, a whole genus. So she's a genius. Um, so <laughs> that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And what was her name again? Inez Mexia. Wow, Inez Mexia. That's incredible. Okay, who's another undersung hero from women's history that we should uh, shout out on this week's show? This is the one that I knew from Jason, Ada Lovelace. Have you ever heard of her? Uh-huh, sure. She is, well, this isn't that important compared to her accomplishments, but she's the only daughter of George Gordon, Lord Byron, the poet. But who cares about that? Because she became basically the world's first computer scientist. This is in the early 19th century. This is like way, 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 way long time ago. She was a mathematician that recognized Charles Babbage's proposed analytical engine, which was this hypothetical computer, had applications beyond pure calculation, that it could be made into a physical thing. She published the first algorithm and that then she intended for it eventually for a computer to be built in order to process it. So she was basically the first person who understood what the implications of this technology could be in writing an algorithm. But the thing is, I mean, have algorithms really survived the test of time? Do they have anything to do with our modern life? No, not at all. They only predict literally everything I ever lay (laughs) eyes on at this point. (laughs) It's some algorithm that's figuring out what I'm probably going to want to click on on Instagram. So Ada Lovelace knew that stuff long before anybody else did. That's incredible. Yeah, and in just 36 short years of life, she accomplished all that. All right, one more unsung or undersung hero from women's history that we should hear about. Get ready. Stagecoach Mary, born into slavery in Tennessee, freed after the Civil War, went to Montana and became the first African-American woman to be a star root mail carrier. And she started that job when she was 60 years old. Wow. She kept it till she was 71 and became a beloved member of the Cascade Montana community. When Montana passed a law forbidding women to enter saloons, the mayor of Cascade granted her a decree exemption. Stagecoach Mary. Yeah, she had guns galore, 38 Smith & Wesson under her apron to protect the mail from wolves and bandits. (laughs) (laughs) And they called her Stagecoach Mary because when she was delivering the mail on her horse, if it uh, got too snowy or the weather was too bad, she would just run out and grab a stagecoach and plow through that snow to get the mail to where it needed to go. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah, who needs Marvel movies? Let's just keep on making movies about these badasses. When is that movie coming out? The Stagecoach Mary story. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who sent in those responses. We really do appreciate it. You are listening to Livewire from PRX. We're celebrating women's history. 
This week on the show, our next guest is a critically acclaimed writer whose work has covered a wide range of experience. In Girlhood, which is her latest collection of essays, she blends investigative reporting, memoir, and scholarship to discuss the forces that shape girls and the adults that they become. The New York Times calls it a feminist testament to survival, and we are so thrilled to have her back on Livewire to talk about it. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Melissa Phoebos, recorded last year. Melissa Phoebos, welcome back to Livewire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. It's a really incredible book. I'm curious, what were you sort of setting out to explore uh, with it? I mean, obviously girlhood, but like specifically, what did you sort of want to talk about? Um, I know what kind of answer you're looking for, but I'm going to tell you the truth instead, which is that I did everything I possibly could to avoid writing this book and really sort of told myself that I was not writing a book for 90% of the time I was writing the book. And so it was only sort of afterward that I figured out what I was doing with the book, which was sort of rewriting the story of my own adolescence and like the comprehensive mind heck. Um, (laughs) The mind bleep of, you know, being an adolescent girl in America um, and sort of how that shaped my mind going forward and the extent to which I found it possible to sort of undo that, you know, mind leap. Mm. I'd read an interview you did where you said, you know, you didn't really want to be sort of opening a vein, as they now say, uh, on each page of this book, because, you know, you've written uh, other books that have been really well received and are beautifully written books, but they're about, you know, uh, pretty serious topics, um, you know, drug use and, uh, you know, working in the sex industry. And here you are with this book that's also very powerful emotionally, but it sounds like you were kind of trying to not do a third book where you're just kind of in a very deeply emotional place. Yeah, I mean, there's that part of me, which like anyone who's been in therapy for a long time is going to relate to where I was like, come on, aren't we done yet? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, we're never done. The more we dig, the more there is to dig. But I didn't want to write a grim book about how our society messed me up. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I already know that. All of us sort of already know that, right? So I wanted it to be a book about restoration and about hope and about joy and about orgasms and about like how to have um, a beautiful life within the constraints of that fact and sort of what kind of agency is possible once we've recognized the ways we've been constrained. Was there a moment in the process of writing these discrete pieces that eventually became a book that that energy came in? Yeah. I mean, I think the energy was sort of there nascent. I just wasn't really aware of it. Um, but for me, I think it sort of breached my consciousness. There's a very long essay in here, which I did this in my last book and I swore I wasn't going to do it again, but there's like a really, really long essay about going to a cuddle party and a million other things. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing that, it just had that like, uh, never ending sort of clown car feeling that I'm sure you <laughs> understand when you're writing an essay and you're like, whoa, that's in here too. Like Foucault, where did you come from? You know? Yeah. It's like Mary um, Poppins's bag, you know, like there's exactly. a lamp in here and a, a street car. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just kept pulling things out, like from my own history, from other kinds of reading. And it became really clear to me that this essay was in a really intimate conversation with everything I had been writing. And I think it was after I drafted that one that I thought, okay, I'm going to look at this monster for what it is and try to figure out how to make it the best thing it could be. 
This is Live Wire. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We are talking to Melissa Phoebos. Uh, her new book is Girlhood. Could we hear uh, a little reading from the book, Melissa? Sure. This is from the chapter titled uh, Wild America. Yep. And this is, uh, this is one of my favorite essays in the book. By the time I was 13, I had divorced my body. Like a bitter, divorced parent, I accepted that our collaboration was mandatory. I needed her and hated her all the more for it. Despite my deep sympathy for all other animals, I was sociopathic in my cruelty toward this one. When she disobeyed me in her hunger, in her clumsiness, I was punitive and withholding. I scrutinized and criticized and denigrated her ceaselessly, even in dreams. Not before or since have I felt such animosity toward another being. There were moments, though. As a teenager at night, alone in my bedroom, sometimes the illusion of autonomy from my body would crumble, and I would be flooded by the most profound sorrow and tenderness. I would look at my strong legs, each scar on my knees a memory, my soft little belly that had absorbed so much hate, even my hands, like two loyal dogs that no amount of cruelty would banish. I suddenly saw my body as I would any animal that had been so mistreated. My poor body, my precious body. How had I let her be treated this way? My body was me. To hate my own body was to suffer from an autoimmune disease of the mind. In these moments, I had the thought that I was mentally ill in the literal sense. For what else could describe this hostile relationship to my very own body? I had no way to differentiate what aspects of my behavior were inherently me and what were cultural impositions insofar as this task is ever possible. What I could see clearly was the violence with which I treated the body that held custody of those other ineffable aspects that I considered to be myself. It held me, and I ought to have held it with equal care. I was unspeakably remorseful, as I imagine any abuser would be in such a moment of self-appraisal. I sat in the dark and hugged myself. I'm sorry, I whispered and squeezed my own shoulder. I love you, I said. When I slept, the veil would draw once more. In the morning, I rose from my bed and looked in the mirror with disdain. You again. Now, those moments seem proof that self-love is an instinct, as animal as any other function of the self. The ferocity of my affection could not be erased, only suppressed under total vigilance. My self-hatred was not self-generated. It was an expression of the environment outside of my body, which it eventually turned out I could change. That was Melissa Phoebos here on Livewire reading from her book, Girlhood. Um, how old were you when you felt something shift in terms of like how the world was perceiving you? Because that seems to be sort of the kind of the jumping off point for this book. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, I was a really sort of athletic, outgoing, like silly, confident kid until, until I was about like 11, early in my 11th year, maybe even 10. Um, and I developed, I started developing early. Um, and that was really sort of the shift when I started to sort of, um, feel much more conscious of being in a girl category, which was partly a privilege. It took that long uh, because I had a family that um, was very careful to sort of not do that. And it wasn't until sort of the outside world was like, no, you can't dress like that. You can't act like that. This is actually what your body means um, that everything started to change. 
And did you have kind of words for that or a sense of what was going on when you were that age? Or is it only now that you're looking back on it and thinking about it a lot to kind of describe, you know, what's happening to, in particular, you know, to women when mm-hmm. they start to, mm-hmm. you know, when they go through girlhood, I guess. Well, it's confusing, right? Because no, of course, I did not have the words to describe it. And, but I had words to describe it. Like I was given some words the way that we all are, where it's like your body's changing. You're becoming a woman. It's really beautiful. Your body's a temple. People should respect it. Like I had all of those information the same way that they told me in the dare program like say no to drugs you know but they didn't tell me how to make people respect my body or how to like exist within it as if it was a holy space um and it's not an intuitive process knowing how to do those things like it's learned right and so it was all sort of happening beneath the surface you know and of course no one was even saying you know your body's worth has now been distilled to its sexual use like nobody was saying that but that message was really really clear but it's hard to name things that other people aren't talking about and it's hard to argue with them as well right so and because I think for me and and I know for a a lot of young folks um the it it's such a generator for shame, that experience and not having words for it and feeling disempowered in your body that that, even if I could have talked about it, I don't think I could have talked about it, honestly, because I was like, I would have been way too mortified. Mm. You know, there was just no way really until I came out the other side, like in my twenties and thirties. You talked to a lot of girl identified people in the book, mm-hmm. like the, the essay mm-hmm. on peeping toms. You interview a mm-hmm. bunch of female identified people about experiences that they've had. I'm assuming, too, that a lot of girl identified people are reading the book and have experienced this level of silence when they were younger. So, what has the mm-hmm. response been from readers who have come out on the other side and then now have this book to mm-hmm. sort of give language to that experience? It's been so overwhelming and rewarding for me. Um, And I say, what I'm going to say next, I think sometimes doesn't sound that believable, but you know, it would absolutely be worth it if no one else ever read this book just for the process of what it did inside of me and in my life. Um, But I have heard from so many people across the gender spectrum, which is really, really rewarding because one of my fears, especially in calling it girlhood, was that it would feel like it was only speaking to people who were assigned female at birth. And anyway, I've heard from all kinds of people who identify with the experiences and are so have expressed a lot of gratitude for having words for things that they didn't talk about, you know, and for me, you know, it was like. I sort of thought one of the reasons I was avoiding admitting to myself that I was writing this book is that there was a part of me that thought, haven't we already talked about it? Don't we already know like how the media messes us up and that patriarchy is bad, like blah, blah, blah. Um, But when I really dug into it, there was this granular level of like small interactions Mm -hmm. on about consent, about um, all sorts of things that I thought I knew what I had experienced. um, And that was really validated when I heard from readers. I have to say, as a reader, like it's a, and I read a lot and I often encounter sentences and observations and I'm like, wow, that's so true. 
But some of the sentences and observations and connections in girlhood, I was like, has Melissa been reading my mail? Like, but of course, <laughs> it's not in my mail. It's not, not in my diary because I haven't really actually been able to articulate, you know, uh, mm. adolescence in that way. And it's a wonderful experience, but it's also kind of shaky. It's very kind of dis, dis um, what's the right word? Dis, uh, discombobulating, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Destabilizing. Destabilizing. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, I mean, I definitely take that as like the highest compliment because that is like that discombobulating <laughs> feeling is actually one of my favorites as a writer, right? And it's yeah. something that like, I'm sure you probably talk about with your students too because they think they have to say something like, super exotic and surprising mm-hmm. that no one's ever heard of. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The thing that I'm going for that I'm hoping is happening on the other end is recognition, mm-hmm. right? It's when you see that, that shaky moment when you read something that's been in your own head, but maybe that's never come out of your mouth or, or at least you've never written it down. Um, so I'm honored oh. that you had that experience. This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening to a conversation that we recorded with Melissa Phoebos about her book, Girlhood. Uh, We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey use the code livewire all lowercase for 20% off at portaltea.co welcome back to livewire i'm your host luke burbank along with elena passarello we are listening to our interview with Melissa Phoebos about her essay collection, Girlhood. We recorded this last year. Take a listen. Um, speaking of kind of coming up with ways to describe things uh, that maybe hadn't had a term for them before, you have a term that you use in this book, empty consent, which mm-hmm. is a really powerful idea. And well, can you kind of describe what you're talking about with that? Sure. Um so I went to this cuddle party and where there was all this emphasis on consent. We did basically a workshop in consent. And then when the cuddling portion happened, without even deciding to, I cuddled with a bunch of people that I didn't want to. And that set me off in this kind of detective story um, to figure out what had happened. And I very quickly got back to my adolescence and this whole like cachet of early sexual experiences in which I had consented, um, or not tried to stop at least, but that I did not find pleasurable and that I would have preferred not to have had. Mm. Um, and there wasn't, you know, I kept, uh, trying to reference this as I was writing and in my notes and later when I was interviewing other people and I kept having to sort of utter these really cumbersome sentences, like consenting to touch about which they felt ambivalent or actively did not want. And I was like, that's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so really just as a shorthand for myself, I came up with the phrase empty consent. Um, but then as soon as I started saying empty consent, the people I was interviewing started picking it up and using it as if it was a word that we already had because it's so neatly named an experience that 
everyone I talked to had, I was, this was, there were many experiences like this while writing this book, but this was probably the most profound that as soon as I started talking about that particular experience and the ways that it sort of haunted my later sexual experiences, I was immediately shown that I was not alone in that experience. And in fact, everyone I talked to had also had it. Yeah, I get the sense that that, you know, is an experience that is shared by a lot of people, a lot of people, particularly Mm -hmm. those who identify, Mm -hmm. uh, those who identify as women. Um, I think that, you know, you mentioned earlier, Melissa, that you were hoping that the name Girlhood didn't make this seem like it was just a book uh, for for women to read. And I have to say, as like a cis male, I've just found this to be so illuminating because obviously there's a huge amount of privilege around being in the body that I'm in. And there's just so many things that I don't ever think about in the world and to read you and the other people in this book talking about what your experiences are. Like, I do feel like it's actually kind of a, as important a book for, for, you know, men to read as well as, you know, mm-hmm. people who've been through this, um, you know? That is so gratifying to hear because that is exactly my hope for this book, you know, that I was going to sort of offer my experience and the experiences of the people that I spoke to and have that be sort of a bank of information of stuff that we don't talk about, you know, or that is not widely talked about. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting as I was writing it, you know, there are men in this book, um, some of them in unpleasant interactions. And, you know, even in writing those scenes, I had tremendous empathy for a lot of the boys and men that I was writing about and who I was thinking about, because if we don't talk about it, how will we know? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it is not safe to assume based on social scripts what other people are thinking and feeling and nobody knows unless we tell them. Right. And so I just wanted to put more information into the atmosphere and I'm, I'm really glad that it landed that way for you. You know, this book is written with the, the sort of benefit of hindsight and perspective for you. And, you know, it's, it's about your girlhood and other people's girlhoods. And what would be, would be amazing would be if that knowledge and what you've now kind of figured out could be offered to somebody who's currently going through girlhood. Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, what would you go mm-hmm. back and say to the 11 year old version of yourself who's like about to go on this journey now that you kind of know mm-hmm. how a lot of the story unfolds? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And, you know, it's a version of that question that I've been asked a lot since the book came out. Lots of people with adolescence or kids verging on adolescence, like, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. um, and honestly, like, you know, for the like 11 year old kids in my life, I think that the most powerful thing that we can do for them isn't what we say, it's what we do, mm. right? It's the ways that, because my parents said the right things. Like I had people in my life who were saying the right things, but I was watching everybody, you know? And and I think the sort of, the real standard that we set is the ways that we respect the sovereignty of our own bodies, the ways that we respect other people's no's and maybes and yeses. Um, and so, you know, I think it's good news and bad news for a lot of people is that sort of doing the inner work ourselves is the best way that we can offer that to young people. Well, Melissa Phoebos, uh, this is a really incredible book. Uh, it's called Girlhood. And uh, thanks for writing it. And thanks for coming on Livewire to talk about it. Oh, it was my joy. Thank you so much for having me. I love Livewire. That was Melissa Phoebos right here on Livewire. Her book, Girlhood, is available now, and her new book, Body Work, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative, is available this month and has Elena doing a victory dance. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait for that book. Uh, Our next guests are nothing short of legendary. They've been around for more than 25 years. They feature dozens of musicians, 
They perform songs in 25 languages. They've sold over 3 million albums worldwide. And not to brag, but they're also kind of friends of the show, which is why back in 2019, they played our big anniversary show, uh, which had the live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland very, very excited. But then towards the end, they came out with Helen Reddy's I Am Woman, which we thought would be sort of the perfect musical number for this week's show as we are honoring a Women's History Month. So take a listen to this. It's Pink Martini recorded at Revolution Hall in Portland. I am woman, hear me roar And numbers too big to ignore heard it all before and I've been down there on the floor and no one's ever gonna keep me down again Oh yes, I am wise, but it's wisdom for to pay Yes, I paid the price but look how much I've gained If I have to, I can do anything I am strong That was Pink Martini right here on Livewire. 
you can check out when they will be coming to a city near you and singing in 25 languages <laughs> over at pinkmartini.com. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Andrea Nevins, Melissa Phoebos, and Pink Martini. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Trace Harrell of Federal Way, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, including our new Best News podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.